Monday nights are my favorite. It's the, uh, and you gotta be careful because someone's gonna be offended, which has always bothered me. I try to really watch what I say. And I'm being serious, I'm not, I'm not like coming down with anybody. But, you know, I do, I love Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday because you gotta wanna be here. I mean, seriously. I mean, you guys have jobs, you have to actually get up before nine. I don't know how you do it. I mean, seriously, I was talking to Clint today. He's, he's like, you know, doesn't have any work, doesn't want to work, just like me. And uh, he's like, I'm on my way to an interview. I'm like, are you crazy? He's like, I know, man, I don't know. But, you know, he's got to feed, feed the family somehow. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I love being here uh, on, on a Monday night because we can just really dig in. and. Uh, I do. I think there are times where there are just seasons where you begin to look at, and I think it, it does. There's an excitement that happens in the younger age, but you get you get caught in this college age through marriage, through having young kids, through the hustle and bustle of life that you just almost get distracted with things. I mean, ten years go by, and you're like, wow, you know, I'm just trying to get to soccer, you know, kind of stuff. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to eliminate that time period. Don't run away with that. But I mean, we do. We we have students that graduate high school and they go off to college and they leave their body and they were legit, but they don't really have a home church, so they don't probably go to church like they like to, and they get lost in this this mist for years. And then you know the decisions they make are decisions that the most important decisions they'll ever make, you know, aside from Jesus' decisions, but uh, then they end up coming back and we just missed that. I'd love to see that time. I'd like to see that time go away, but I don't think it's going to go away until the church really becomes the church and we go after them hardcore. So uh, we've been looking at Titus to get your Bible. Let's open up to uh, chapter 1, and this has been just an enormously significant uh, passage of scripture. I studied this back in the late 90s um, and at a teen camp uh, and ended up just really focusing on chapter 2, looking at godly younger men and godly younger women, and over the years studied the whole book. Uh, the book of Titus, uh, written by Paul, of course, to his protege uh, on a missionary journey. We don't have any details of what happened in Crete. We do know that Paul goes into this area, a very precarious area. I can't wait to share with you about Crete tonight because we hear about the Cretans. Um, but he goes into this area, and, and Jesus just shows up, and it is this phenomenal movement of God. And, and you have to take you have to take some time, block out life, get into the text, crawl into their world, and recognize the kind of events that happened when Paul would come into these towns. I mean, you read from chapters like 14 all the way up through chapters 20, 21, 22 of Acts. Paul was like a one-man wrecking crew. I mean, really. I mean, he was going into these into these towns, and he was just, it was incredible what God was doing. It was incredible what God was doing. And a, tr and, 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 and a church would be established, and maybe a lot of curious folk would be established. And he would be there for a time, and there would be some structure, and there would be teaching and preaching and growth and wonder. And then he would go on to the next place, and he would leave this team behind that would organize it. So he writes this letter back, and the first half of the letter from chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11 
is really focused on individuals in the church, and from verse 12 all the way to the end of chapter 3, verse 15, is focused on those individuals operating together as a body. He opens up with the first chapter with the first four verses as an introduction, a model of his own life to both Timothy and the church, kind of a focusing statement. Then he goes right into the elders, the, the, the leaders of the church. And one of the specific areas that the leaders have to focus on is this group of religious people. He calls them the circumcision group. And as I've been mentioning, and it never gets old, and the greatest tool of teaching is repetition. I was in some of the classes today at the school. I just wormed my way into everywhere. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was telling them about the Roman culture. Uh, that, you know, any culture for, that for entertainment opens up a stadium and, you know, shows slaves being eaten alive by wild animals. And that's entertainment, an acceptable entertainment in the culture. <clears throat> Don't Google it. But go to the library and study the sexual depravity of that day and age. The acceptance of and the normalcy of pedophilia. And, I mean, their culture was like the days of Noah. I mean, Revelation warns that that culture will return. And that will be the time of the son becoming of the son of man. I mean, we're headed in that direction, biblically. It's, it's foretold. That was the culture in which the early church was raised. How would you even begin to plant a church in that town? In that kind of a culture? You know, can you imagine running a children's ministry there? Seriously. Can you imagine pastoring? Can you imagine youth pastors? All of this. And of all the things that Paul obviously, and, and that is dealt with, by the way, through the book of Acts, and some in Revelation, and some other places, there are some of these issues where Paul is dealing with young men who's sharing the father's wife, and you, you've read that stuff, you've read the New Testament, and he's dealing with some of those here and there. The overwhelming, predominant emphasis for Paul in terms of danger is not that culture. That's just staggering to me. It's not that culture. We're not to hide from them. Let that sink in. I mean, I'm your typical homeschooler dad, you know, that hides his kids away from that culture. And there's this knee-jerk reaction of, I don't want them in that. And I don't. And I thought, how do you keep them from it? And do we got ideas? I build a dungeon. And, uh, you know, we had, we had, we had chains. And... But that's, that's my mission field, man. And the way he talks about them is just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And we, we, we have to return to the heart of being the body of Christ. I'm talking about you. You are the literally only hope that your neighbors and your, and your, and the, your co-workers have. God is not coming in a burning bush anymore. He's just not. So he writes back. Did you, did you feel the gravity of that? I mean, that's just my word. And so he highlights in the middle of that culture, he says there is a danger and there's a deadly group. I mean, absolutely deadly that you need to be on the lookout for. And he doesn't bring up heresies. He doesn't bring all the kinds of things he's brought up in other places. He says the most deadly group you're going to have. They'll absolutely destroy your church, wreak havoc. And you're thinking, oh yeah, predators. And you're thinking all this stuff. And he's like, no, religious people. <laughs> Oh, they'll kill you. You're like, really? The deadbeat 65-year-old, the deadbeat 22-year-old, 
who just shows up to church on Sunday. That's what we looked at with your teens this morning in Shaman's class, who skipped the church tonight for the ball game. Um, <laughs> I, tease I love that guy. He does love that guy. Um, yeah, I was, I was teaching this class today, and that's, that's the devastating group. They, they infiltrate every area of the body. And what we mean by, before we look at any of their characteristics, they operate, and what we and I don't want to go too long tonight, so just, just really briefly, we do not live in a Christian nation. We live in a nation that was founded on Christian principles. Um, we were, you know, we have Christian laws based on Christian concepts. We are, we're not, like, we're not an Islamic nation. We don't have Sharia law. You can't kill your kids. If you want to do that, move to Iran. Okay? So we're not built on, we're not built on Judaic law. We're not, we're not in some of the Asian countries and all these different, we are built, we're a nation that was built, was fabricated, that was put together, that's knit together on Christian principles that are right out of the scriptures. So most people here who are not Christian are still in some manner, because that is the nation in which they've been raised and the history they have, in some regard they are religious. Even if they're atheists, they're atheists because of that religious system. They don't know about Islam. They live in America. That's, that's our context of life. That's why we take worldviews, which is a great class. You should survey that. So we, we, you know, we live in this religious context of life to some extent, even those who don't claim, and they claim that they're not religious, they are. And all form of religion in our country comes back to really a Judaism a you know, Judeo-Christian kind of perspective of God, which is God is here and I am here. That's why you see the USC fighters say, thank the man upstairs. What's he talking about? You know, as he's spewing profanity after, you know, he wins the fight. It's the guy that claims to be Christian who nails the three-pointer after every shot. And that's great. But that doesn't make you Christian. That's this. Because he's not out there anymore. He's come to move inside of my life. But Paul is dealing with a group of people in this area that have come in and influenced the body with this kind of lifestyle. Where God is here and I am here. Where God is righteous, God is holy, and I am unrighteous, and I am unholy. And he is, he is, he is, they have, they have, you know, impressed upon them the law and the traditions and, and all of those kinds of things which do not apply to us anymore. They do not apply to us anymore. That God's calling has called man out of who he is into his perspective. And so it literally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new creation. The language that Jesus uses when he talks to Nicodemus and, and, and throughout his gospels, some of the terminology that Paul uses is just astounding but accurate. I am different. I am new. Because God, if you are a Christian, he physically resides in your body. Which should change how you live every day. It should. It should change how you feel. I don't think you're ever going to win your town until your heart literally breaks for them. Uh, I was going to talk to Clint about this. I'm going to pick on Clint tonight. <laughs> but I think everybody needs to hear this. So just instead of telling you to save time, I'll just tell you everybody else. Fair enough. I uh, was in Africa in the late 90s and I uh, was going over with um, Stephen Manley. He's an evangelist and mentor of mine. We were preaching over there uh, in several different countries. 
And at one point, we were over there in uh, South Africa, and they put me up in a school, and we had a whole team with us, and he and I, only about two or three of us were, were the preachers, and then we had a whole support system, and support cast, and it was really good. But they, so they divided us up throughout the city, and they put me in this one school, and it was a school with college students, like old private school. I never in South Africa, I didn't know if they had universities or how this whole thing worked. And um, they ended up using me there, and I ended up teaching in some of their classes and chapels and that kind of stuff for two or three days. And I got to know one guy who was kind of the guy that was my translator when I needed it, and um, he was the one that kind of chaperoned me around, and I stayed in his room and got to know him and all that. And we got kind of close that week, and I was learning a little about the school as I went along. And I was kind of disturbed and shocked and jealous all at the same time about his school. Is that me? Okay. Tight. Is it better? Jesus fixed that. It's amazing what he does. So you're going to love this. So I ended up sitting down with this guy and I said, so what are you majoring in? I said, how much school are you? It's two years school. I said, so you got an associate's degree. He was like, what's that? I said, well, it's a two-year degree. He said, oh, yeah. So what do you major in? He goes, hey, what do, you, what do you mean major? And I said, well, you know, you get your credentials. He said, like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm about to go to a handheld. That's going to be disturbing, isn't it? Dude, that resonates with me. 
What if we had a school where I was, if we were turning out 20 of those guys every, every year? Those guys and girls, 20 of them. People that are called to full-time ministry in the engineering field. Do you know what I'm saying? Called to, called to ministry in the, in the medical field. Called to ministry in the construction field. Just go win, man. Just go win your world. What would you call them? I think you call them a Christian. Seriously. And that's, see, they didn't have church like we had church over there. And so, in essence, that's, that's why we, that's the body. That's supposed to be the local church. That's supposed to be what we're doing. And it's interesting that you see this trend in the New Testament. I'll give you one illustration of this. This is just an opening illustration. And I want you to see this with your own eyes. If you go to the seven churches in Revelation, specifically chapter 2, he's dealing with the church in Pergamum. It begins in verse 12. That you have to understand, when we think of it, to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, right, we're thinking, okay, it's got this little church and the steeple and pews and they, you know, they go and they meet there from their local job. That's not what the church was in Pergamum. It was this group of people that lived in houses and they were probably a series of house churches that were in the economy, that were living and were called and the, and the, and the, liter the town was their parish kind of a deal. So, so Jesus writes this letter. John writes it, Jesus tells him, and then John ends up going and delivering it there, and, and it probably circulated, there's all kinds of uh, details about that. But in this letter, it's interesting, Jesus says stuff like in verse 13, I know where you live, <laughs> where Satan has his throne. There's all kinds of background to this, and what was going on in the town, the cult that was there, the big golden chair, the worship, and all the idolatry. You remain true to my name. You did renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I know your context of life. He says, Never, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there in that city who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught a lot to entice the Israelites to, eat, uh, to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. You also have those who hold to the te teachings of the Nicolaitans. And you, we, we went all the way through this and kinds of people in this town and the deceptiveness that was going on in this town. It's very similar to Crete, by the way, which we're going to look at eventually when we get there. But he's describing this town and then there's kind of a, an assumption that you can miss in the text. This is so good. There's an assumption you miss in the text when Jesus speaks. He says, repent, therefore. Who's he telling you to repent? The church. Now, he's, he's talking to this group, and there's a whole group of people over there that are evil. I mean, that's where they live. He doesn't say, go tell them to repent. He says, repent. Listen to this. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he says, listen, repent, or I'm going to come and get them. As if there's this assumption that the church would say, no, 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 give us more time. I, there is a second coming. I do believe there's a theology that supports that. And we oftentimes don't talk about it, but I don't think we don't talk about it for the right reasons. And we don't tell people why we don't talk about it. We just feel really obscure and ambiguous and it becomes unhelpful. He is coming back. But I think we should almost have the heart of God that says, just 
give me another day. I know it's bad. I've almost got him. That's, that's the, oh, I'm ready for you to come back. Hey, going to work. <laughs> you see the difference? That's not how they talked. That's, that's not, that's not super Christianity. That's just, that's, that was the early church, sawed in two, cut in half, fed the lions. Give us more time. I'm like, are you kidding me? What, what if that was, what if we prayed for that kind of attitude? I mean, serious, authentically. Every morning, get up and say, Jesus, I give you permission to literally, as a teacher in the school, to break my heart over these kids. Seriously, I give you permission to keep me up at night. Whatever it takes. I know I'm not going to like it. I love my sleep. But I give you permission. I'm going to move in the middle of a, of a neighborhood. My wife and I are getting a house. Give me a heart for everybody on my street. If I don't have two or three restraining orders against me by the end of the year, I'm not trying. <laughs> Seriously, that's... And we get so just, and it's not, I mean, life is busy, and we're Americans, and we've got all this stuff, and we've got kids, and we've got all those, but that can't take a back seat. Does that make sense? That really, that's really significant. Now, the introduction. <laughs> we're going to hurry. I apologize. Worship is long. <laughs> Open up to Titus, chapter 1, again, if you would. And uh, this group that he's dealing with, again, the identity that's coming in. The identity of this group that's, that has come into the church. And of course they were Jews. Paul was a Jew. We don't really know. Most of the time Paul would come in and he would be talking about the God of his forefathers and all this. And Jews got pulled into it. Who knows how that all played out. He just didn't go to the Jews. Most of the time he'd go to the synagogues. But I mean he would always go into the people. And then Jews get saved and they had family members. And somehow all that group ended up coming to church. Okay. So you've got this whole hodgepodge. And and. and what grandma and grandpa were raised up in, or mom and dad, or what have you, the traditions of their fathers, which was this kind of relationship, did to be spread in the church. And he's very strong on, 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 on those kinds of people that have this kind of relationship. At the core of the at the core of their heart, at the, where, where, the, where all spiritual activity, activity takes place in their heart, they are simply deceived. They're just deceived. And they're talkers. The, the advice that they give, the teaching that they give, is just in vain. It does not work. The advice they give and how to manage your kids. And, and he gives great identity to them. And ultimately, you realize what he's saying is, is what makes these people bad is not that they're secretly evil. They just do not have his mind. I, I cannot tell you. And I think it was in Texas, but this is like a big state, so you'll never figure out where. This is a true story. This is about seven or eight years ago. I've been in this church for 10 years. Every two years they had me. They ran 60, 70 people, and, which I never, I just go to wherever. But they had me every two years. They were always bragging about they had the, the you know, these speakers and the kind of speakers they had. I made it to that kind of roster. And, and they paid you very well, took care of you. You know, it was a great check. And but I was just under the impression after like the fourth time I was there that I was just entertainment. They wanted to hear good preaching. And the last time I was there, I kid you, I kid you not, I was still on the bus, so I don't know how long ago this was, but I said, I'm not coming back. I told the pastor. 
I said, I don't want to offend you, man. I just you have to forgive me, but I'm not coming back. So we want you. I'm like, I'm not coming. I don't. Been coming here for 10 years, and there's not one new person here. And I am not an entertainer. And I kid you not, he looked at me and goes, I'm leaving too. <laughs> Seriously. I'm not going to a church like that. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not hurting for bookings. I don't have to ask anymore. People just keep calling. I, I'm taking I'm taking these kind of places. You guys have come a long way in 10 to 15 years. You're not, you're not the same congregation you were. You look different. I said that to Danny when I came in on Sunday morning. It feels different in here. It's exciting. It's only going to get better. So this group here, they just don't. It's not that they're evil. They do believe. They're zealous. Oh, I don't. They don't take away. They're just. But they don't have his heart. They just. They're just not a danger in their community. That's verse ten. Now the result that this. The result that this group makes in the church, which he gives us in verse uh, eleven, the language that he uses is. His, he says, "Listen, they must be silenced." You, you've got to shut them down. And it's the desperateness of that. Whatever it takes. You can even get physical with this crowd. Hey, I don't fight much, but hey, I fight the little ladies that are 70. I'll tell you that right now. Or little old men or, or you know, teenagers or my age group that just comes to church and is not into Jesus, not into being used. And, and he says you've got to shut them up because they're ruining entire families. The principles of the old covenant law are producing kids who never come back. They're producing, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had mom call me, pray for Jimmy. Dude, how is Jimmy? He doesn't come to church anymore and he's living with his girlfriend, he's doing drugs, he's after he got arrested last weekend. I don't understand, I made him go to church every Sunday. <laughs> I get it. But that smells, and I make my kids go too, but it's, there's something missing. See, that's my number one priority. They're ruining entire families by teaching what is not must. See, they're teaching all the peripheral kind of don't hit your sister. I give this illustration, and I gave this to you, I think, a couple years ago here, but I went, my kids are black belts, and so when they fight, they literally got physical. And so, you know, as a parent, you look at that, and you're watching all the kicks and spins, and you're like, that's awesome. But I can't let that continue. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the responsible. And so, how do you deal with that? Well, you've got to put down standards. Hey, no hitting is going to go on in this family. But ultimately, I don't care if they hit. I don't want them to want to hit. And that's a completely different thing. Well, I didn't hit him. I didn't call him an eight. I just told him the truth. And they become legalistic. Well, yeah, I just told him the truth. They become little religious Pharisees. <laughs> then I'm allowed to beat them. That's what it says in verse 11, verse 10. That's why you get violent. And so I don't, I don't want that in my home, seriously. And then we substitute the F word for freaking. And I use freaking, but not in the context that they use freaking. It's a substitute. And they have substitute cuss words. But their emotions and their face look the... But where do they pick that up? Where do they pick that up? Well, I didn't say anything. So they're spiritually okay. Well, where did they come up with the fact that they're spiritually okay? I don't know where they come. I hope it didn't come from me. 
So my job, and I'm dealing right now, honestly, this is so stressful. I'm dealing with this the way my, with my daughter and the culture in which she lives, which is packaging her as an object. You know, and it's so hard because you just can't go out and kill everyone. You know, <laughs> and you can't remove her from society. And, and it's not about measuring lines and all of this. It's about having her have the eyes of Jesus and the, and the clothing that she wears. And, you know how hard that is? This is not going to cut it. This is not going to transform her. This is an outside thing where God is good. She needs to be literally infiltrated by his presence to where his eye he opens. She literally sees through his eyes. You ask any old timer, I'm telling you, there's just there's times that I'm becoming an old timer, which is awesome. I'm redefining that age. But it's there's times when I do it, I'm walking along, and it's just like he takes over my brain and words come. I was praying with a kid uh, in a retreat. Probably safe to say this because he didn't come here. But, but at your retreat last year, and uh, we went out and we said after the service, he's pouring his heart, he's crying, his difficulty, and it came in my mind. I mean, like a, it was like a voice, and it said, "Rebuke suicide in his life." And I just started praying over him, and when I opened my eyes, he was just staring at me. He goes, "How did you know?" I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus, man. Yeah. I'm not super spiritual. So ask Lauren. <laughs> I mean, there's ask the people that hang around me. I'm not some super natural kind of, I'm a normal guy. I'm a normal guy. I just, I want to live tight with it. Like, obnoxiously tight with it. I want my daughter to have that kind of insight. His presence, his breath, his his assumptions, his motivations, his preferences. She could be a walking display of what Jesus looks like in a teenager's body. Wouldn't it be phenomenal? That, that's the danger of letting this loose in your home. Anything that smells, I, and I, and again, I don't know, I don't want to tell you too much because you look up to me, but, you know, we, we filter, <laughs> we filter things into our life, but I just watch it with Jesus. And what he doesn't consider entertainment, I don't consider entertainment. See, the things that I'm not a stickler on, most people are, but the things most people are stickler on, I'm not. What bothers me didn't bother them, and what doesn't bother them bothers me. It's really a lot. All things are permissible, not all things are beneficial. People will throw an absolute fit over things like tobacco and alcohol. And they'll let their neighbor die and go to hell at the same time. That's bizarre. That's bizarre to me. I don't understand that. Oh, he choose. I don't care. I asked him to be on my board. That stuff just falls away. We have uh, two uh, lesbians that come to our church. And uh, they're just different. I might have mentioned this already. Weeks blend together, I apologize, but it's worth telling again. This is a relatively new thing, but people say, how do they, how do they start coming to your church? I was like, we invited them. And it was really awkward. You're going to have to know and through the Holy Spirit if you're, he'll guide you through these conversations. 
Seriously, how did you do these conversations? So they come to us in every church in our town. There's again, we're living in a big town. You know, we're not changing the bad. I don't care what Starbucks says. We're not having gender neutral. But we ain't no North Carolina. Blah 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 blah. And so, you know, hey, they're not welcome to go to church anywhere, and they're Christian. What they say. So they come to our church and say, we want to come to your church on Sunday morning. I was like, walk in. Yeah. They're like, we're lesbians. I was like, all right. Just what do you think about homosexuality? And it just came to me. I said, well, I said, let's, let's table that. Let's just table that, all right? You love Jesus? We do. It's all we do. I said, let's go get in this space together. Let's live together for a period of time so you know me and I know you and you trust me and I trust you. And we're just going to absolutely go after him. And if you can tolerate what we believe is Christianity, when that time comes to have that conversation, I'll have it with you. And one of them is coming around. <laughs> and we're going to walk them through that mess that they live together and share possessions and They don't bite most of the time. <laughs> so the verse 11, you're never going to have. You're never going to have that, man. And I, Jesus had that. Jesus had that. Now you move into verses 12 and 13. This is so good. Listen to this verse. In verses 12 and 13. It says, even. Now, verse 10 is their identity. Verse 11 is the, the, the habit that he calls in the body. Verse 12 is the blockade. I don't know what to call this, but it's they make some kind of emphasis in the church where the world no longer matters. The world suffers. The, the church will not only suffer. In fact, it's devastating in your body. You're going to lose your kids. You're going to lose all passion. You're going to have church splits. You're going to be fighting over music. You're going to be fighting over stuff like for dishonest gain. Everybody's going to want their own way. That kind of stuff. But the, outside of the devastation of the body, you literally are going to become a non-factor in your world. This is one more small thing. I love these passages, and I don't know, I don't think this is wrong, because it's not an arrogant thing. I don't really, I don't talk about it with people other than when I mention it in front of the service in front of several hundred people. But I love the passage where Paul comes up, and you have these guys that are casting out these demons in the, you know, the, the, the God that Paul believed. With. You know that whole, that whole passage? And the demons like sit back and go, we know Jesus. And we heard of Paul. But we don't know you. But wouldn't it be something if the enemy has heard of you? Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't that be like you walk into Walmart and you hear in the spiritual realm, oh, no. <laughs> Dude, I'm serious, man. I mean, where are our priorities? I mean, where are our focus? It's the stuff I muse on. Verse 12 is the, is, the, is the consequence of religious people having the bodies that affects the world. Even one of their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Even one of their own prophets. Who is their own prophets? People say, well, it's the Cretans. Remember, they're religious. One of this group's prophets. 
And you miss, you might miss that in English, but in the grammar, it's, and, and as you think of it, you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Because he's been talking about this room of rebellious people and their own prophets. Even one of their own prophets. And prophets are, it is an ordained highest gift in the early church. So um, think about this. Among the chief of their spiritual leaders, the voice of God to that group, that was the prophet in the early church. You know what I'm saying? That was the that was, I mean, prophet, big time. Really prevalent this time. One of the, the key mouthpiece of God in their body talks about their town like that. Which should make you wonder, I wonder if that's how God talks to their town. And then I noticed this was in quotes, and I thought, that's kind of weird. That's actual quote. And I Googled it, and I found out that this was an actual quote. You can Google this, not now. But this is an actual quote by a poet, I can't remember his name, who was in the courts of fashion in and around the Roman Empire as it was changing hands before it was Roman Empire, and under the Greeks. And he was, uh, it was 650 years before this time period, and it had lasted. And this became a stereotype for a group of people, a racist stereotype. We have them today. You ever heard of a Pollock joke? You ever researched why we pick on Polacks? The Polish? It's in your history. It'll shock you. My dad uh, used to buy and sell stuff. And uh, whenever he wanted to, you know, go get the price down from something, he would say he would, he'd Jew him down. Where do you think that comes from? My dad used to say that my uncle, he would give him stuff and he'd come back and take it back. He was in this. It is a racist, ungodly, demonic stereotype that categorizes and over is an overarching statement that pigeonholes and condemns verbally a curse over a group of people. That came from the world that had infiltrated the body of Christ and it was literally from their own leaders talking about their community the way the world talks about their community. It makes me wonder how the church talks about homosexuals. I wonder if we come up with all the kind of cool terminology that the world calls. I've literally been around Christians who come into agreement with, with certain political parties. And the way they talk about a certain political leader. And you can do whatever you want to do. I want to talk about, this sounds so cheesy, so I hope you hear my heart, but I'd rather talk about my political leaders the way that he would talk about my political leaders. I really would. See, I don't want to talk about my world the way that they talk about the world. That's this group. One of their own spiritual leaders gives insight to the culture in which they live, which is consistent with how everybody else sees that culture. And that's coming out of the pulpit and shaping how people view. What was so beautiful, and Paul just condemned this. You especially look at Corinth. I mean, the whole book of Corinth is just big one, it's one long spanking by Paul. He's like, are you kidding me? One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite scenes of Paul 
and, and I studied this back in college, and it just, you know, man, it was just so, it was less about my academic insight and more about just, wow, God's just revealing his heart. I was studying in this uh, Acts chapter 16, Paul's on his way to a place of prayer, and there's this, and of course, on a Roman road, and there was always traffic. And as he gets near the city, several days near the city, which was close, um, there's this apparent, like, almost carnival band, ancient carnival band that was traveling. And in the text, it says they had a slave girl. You remember the passage? Who predicted the future. She had a spirit by which she predicted the future. It's Acts chapter 16, 1 through 15. And as they're coming along, she's calling out. And it's insignificant. She's not prophesying. There's no spiritual connotation. The emphasis is on the demonic creature that's taken possession of her. And she has been exploited because of this demonic creature. She predicts the future by the spirit which lives in her. And so she's captive. Her owner, in fact, it says in the passage, her owners are dealing with her. So you can imagine the life of this poor girl. She's following Paul and Silas as they go along, and she's yelling at the law, uh, at the passerbyers. And the text says, te "Listen to these guys; they're telling you the way to be saved." Now it's, it's ironic, and I always thought it was strange because I listened to some scholars, and they're trying to make this case how she was trying to get attention to herself and all of this. And the text, not only grammatically, does not does not present that, but the whole tone of her language and what she would be saying. And, and it was all, listen to these guys. They're telling you the way to be safe. Come on. And it's, you're almost under this impression. She's saying, don't end up like me. Just listen to this girl. And then in the passage, it says, Paul turns. And he was so troubled. The word troubled is the same word that is used to describe Jesus' heart breaking over Jerusalem. <laughs> he looks at this girl and goes, ah, and frees her. Cast the demon out of this girl. And when their hope of, and when the owners of the slave girl realized their hope of making money was gone, they pitched the girl and grabbed Paul and Silas. <laughs> Which is incredible. It's incredible. It was a oh, demonic girl. What a loser. Was she shut up? Then she don't go to my church. His heart broke for that girl. See what, what that means? He had an entirely different lens than the religious culture of their day. See, what if you and I, what if you and I, I plead with you, what if you and I had the lens, had his lens by which we viewed our world? I'm telling you, it'll drive, it'll change the way you drive. Upstairs, you'll be driving to work, people will be honking and y'all, they'll look at you, you'll be like, I love you. <laughs> They're like, that guy's weird. <laughs> Don't change him. Stuff just bounces off. Because you realize, man, they're just victims of their circumstance. In fact, when you get into the, te the text and Paul's description, Paul's interpretation of this, and I can't prove this. I've tried hard, but I can't prove this. In the original language, there are obviously several different Greek words that we can translate into our English. Like we have, like, I think there's five, five different Greek words for love. I cannot find the original terms that were used by this, by this poet. First off, it was 600 years before, so it was an entirely different kind of Greek that had been passed down. 
By the time this letter was written, you're, you're on the fourth kind of Greek. The fifth kind of Greek is common Greek, which we have today. We're dealing with Koine Greek, which is a much different kind of Greek. It's, it's the way to talk about it would be like the difference between our English and 15th century English. Yeah, exactly. Okay, they're just like, they're totally different. So we don't have the original words. So when Paul is quoting this, you look at some of the terminology. The, the terminology, they're liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. These terms almost have victim, oh, it's so sad, kind of connotations to them. It's not evil. For instance, the word liar literally has the understanding when you go through the word study. It's an inability to tell the truth. Um, there's this guy at college. His name was Rob. I won't mention his last name. And he was just a compulsive liar. Seriously, he was a compulsive liar. He was not evil. He was just so insecure. Yeah, what happened this last weekend? Dude, I shot a deer. I did too. 700 pounds. <laughs> Dude, you have any pictures of it? No, no, I gave it away to some homeless people. You know? <laughs> that was that guy. Yeah, but you know, I'm taking Taekwondo. Oh, yeah, I got an eighth grade black belt. Yeah. And he was so, not, I was so absolutely evident. And people made fun of him. I felt sorry for the guy. Because he had, he had a hole inside of him a mile wide. Yeah. Sexual sin is rooted in some type of past trauma every time. And it's a fictitious world that is chosen over reality because that's safer than here. It breaks your heart. The bully exists, he's produced out of trauma. And it's a persona. That's, that's the language. They're liars. Evil brutes literally mean wild animals. Used in translated wild animals, both Revelation and Genesis. It's it's excuse me, Revelation and Daniel. And, he, and, and this word describes the person who's just, he's wild, he's unpredictable, he's untrustworthy, don't touch him, he's, he's susceptible, he's just absolutely out of control. Emotional, flies off the handle. <clears throat> he's miserable. Lazy. Gluttonous. They have bellies. There's this passage in uh, it's this woman who's been caught in adultery. And it's not in the original manuscripts. Some of those people think it was added in later uh, in the most earliest reliable transcripts in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But this woman gets caught in the act of adultery. The language is really specific, which if she's caught in the act, where's the male? That's interesting. But she's dragged before Jesus, and the and the men throw her down, the leaders of Israel throw her down in front of Jesus, and they Bring the charges against her, and what should we do? And Jesus, of course, bends down. He's like the man. He's like the most sarcastic stud I've ever met in my life. And he's, you know, I say, hey, whoever's perfect, whoever's without sin, you, you be the first one to stone her. And they all walk away. It's a awesome story. But if you follow through, he looks at this woman, 
And he says, hey, where'd they all go? Where's your accusers? She goes, they're not, not here. And then he goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There are two different Greek words for go in the New Testament. One word for go is used in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus looks to Satan and says, away from me. That literally means go away. It's an annoying type of go word. We looked at it actually last year when we were in James chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. That word go is there. It's an annoying term of go. The other go in the New Testament is the edifying, it's the encouraging, it's the Matthew 28 where Jesus looks at the disciples and says, go. It, it, the picture of that term in secular Greek is in the stadium when you're, when you're cheering for your competitor and he's running and you're screaming and saying, go. And if he wins or loses, it depends on how you treat your family all week. And, you know, I mean, he's just, you know, you've got his shirt in your office and, you know, you dress like him and got posters. And it's not weird. But you're just cheering that guy on and you're saying, go. It's an edifying word. That's that word that Jesus uses. In other words, he looks at her and says, I'm on your side. <laughs> A woman caught in adultery. I'm on your side. I'm pulling for you. I'm on your team. I need someone like that in my corner. I need someone like that in my kid's corner. You need to be in someone's corner like that. That guy at your job that everybody hates, fall in love with him. Take ownership for him. That's the language. And of course, the last idea in the passage is uh, the church, because of this group, they don't have the perspective of Jesus. They become a legalistic group of people that is unwelcoming to a lost world, and they just simply don't win anybody. I, you know, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at personally. Well, I mean, you're at church on Monday night. You're doing awesome. But... I'm just coming to a point in my life where I just feel God's been narrowing me. And he's not narrowing me in the areas. <laughs> this is hysterical. Dr. Jones used to be your DS here. You guys remember that old white guy uh, with the old white hair? Where's Chris? <laughs> nice to you, buddy. Uh, his dad was awesome. Like, most people don't know this. It's not about Dr. Jones. But you'd ask him. He was like kind of a rebel, you know, fan of the pool. Would you speak old mixed bathing? It's a wonderful story. Go ask Chris. <laughs> mixed bathing. Yeah, they talk weird, you know, back in the day. But I love the guy. And he had me in his camp meeting one year. And uh, I did something to take a bunch of people off. And I was with Manly. And I'm going back. I'm going to your camp meeting this year, I think, all right? Is it this year? Is it this year? No, it's next year. Oh, it's not this year. Is it this year? Someone's going to be upset. <laughs> Someone's going to be upset. Uh, <laughs> But I was at this camp meeting, and, and, they, and uh, they called me, and I was out in the football family. This is the whole ordination service. I'm playing softball with the guys. And so I come in, and I didn't see I didn't know the whole ordination. General superintendent was there, and I come in, making them up with the mud, and all that, and smacking them in. And I put the over my, and I'm wearing, everybody's wearing suit and ties, you know? And I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, and I'm the camp meeting speaker, right? <laughs> and Dr. Jones goes, if you didn't have the message, we wouldn't tolerate your antics. <laughs> Telling me you're tolerating me, though. 
God has narrowed me, and I'm under this impression over the years, people thought I would just one day grow up. I'm growing. I just, and there are other areas that need to grow. But I'm growing, and I'm growing in areas that are so significant. And I'm just becoming more narrow and more stubborn and more passionate and more singular. And I know who I am, and I know where I'm going, and I'm not waiting. I'm going. And I'm pulling as many people as I can. And I, I do. I think that's Paul. And that, that tone is felt in his letter to Titus. And he's saying, this is the group of people that Crete desperately needs. Because this group right here is never going to change them. For 600 years, they carried that stereotype. For 600 years, they, they literally carried that cultural curse. Wouldn't it be neat if there's a whole group of people who came in and said, I'm just not going to talk to you that way. Like, there's a whole new perspective. Who's that perspective? Jesus. Oh, he loves you. He just thinks you're awesome. And it transforms your identity. Jesus, I love you. And I just, I do. I love the way you look at me. I love the way you talk to me. I love how patient you are with me. Honestly, Jesus, the way you treat me changes the way that I treat my world. If I could be half as gracious to my wife and kids as you have been to me, if I could be just half as patient with my world and my coworkers and the people that I encounter, just an inkling of the patience that you've lavished on me. Man, I just, I, forgive me, I get so distracted. I pray tonight for those of us who have attended, that those of us who have been here, I just pray you would absolutely lock us in. That this would not be an encouraging message. It would not be just a, a nudge in the right direction. Some emotional, spiritual high movement that's going to take our church. But that this would be a catalytic, defining moment in my life where reality slapped me upside the head. And I do. My prayers are going to change from this, from this night forward. I know what my New, Year, New Year's resolutions are going to be. I know what I want for my birthday. I know what I'm going to pray every morning when I get up. And Jesus, I am not adequate. I am not patient enough. I'm going to have to be so tight with you. You're going to have to source me. I'm going to have to have the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Your gentleness. Your self-control in my life. Because there's no way I'm going to pull off going down to my job and trying to imitate Paul. So I just like you. I want you to use me like you used him. I want you to display yourself through me like you displayed yourself through them. I want to experience the early church anointing in my life. In the name of Jesus, I'm not settling for anything less. I'm not settling for anything less, Lord. I do. I, I want all of you. I give you permission to narrow me. Press me. Push me. Pigeonhole me. Focus me. Get oppressive. Be aggressive. Let's get tight. Open my eyes. I want to see the way you see. I want to feel the way you feel. This is this is the heart. This is the cry of the church, Jesus. This is the pastor.
pastoral letter. This is, the, this is the letter from the pastor to pastors. This is the tone of who we're supposed to be as a body. Let it be so. Spend some time just seeking and worshiping. Josh is our pastor tonight. I love Josh. He's going to close us when he feels this time is appropriate. These are great days. Seriously, these are great days. No one's seeking to cut off your head yet. No one's threatening to saw you in two yet. We live in the greatest country in the world. Seriously, we're not, we're not gonna be we're not gonna be drugged down the street and killed yet. I do, I think we should seize the day. Use the opportunity we have, the finances we have. We can capture our heart.